All right, James chapter 2 uh, this morning. We are going to be uh, talking about the life of one of God's friends, a man named Abraham. And you know from our journey through James that James has been talking to people very early in the Christian, uh, in the history of the Christian church, 15 years after the gospel was first announced and 15 years after the birth of the church, the first pastor of the first church writes a letter to people who have been scattered throughout all the little cities and all the little kingdoms of the world. And James has one mission for those people. It's the same mission that you and I have as we live in whatever city that God has called us to live in and where God has placed us. We all live in the little kingdoms of the world. And James is talking to us, and the first thing he wants us to say, to to realize is this, you have actually been translated, moved out of that little kingdom, and you have been given membership. You are part of a much bigger kingdom. You are part of the kingdom of God. And so you live in all the little kingdoms of the world, but you are a citizen and you are an ambassador of God's big kingdom. And as an ambassador of God's big kingdom, James has one big mission for you in all the little kingdoms where you find yourself. And that mission is this. You are to display a living faith to a dying world. You are to display a living faith to a dying world. That's exactly what all of us are called to do. And that's what James is writing about. So I live in the city of Easley, South Carolina. And in the city of Easley, South Carolina, God has called my family, Beth, myself, our family, to cultivate and display what a living faith looks like. Some of you live in Williamston. Some of you live in the metropolis of Pelzer, South Carolina. Some of you live in Greenville. Some of you live in West Greenville. Some of you live in Simpsonville or in Taylor's. And I'm starting to get in trouble because I'm going to forget what city you're in and you're going to go, he didn't say my city. Uh, So whatever city you're in, God has called you to cultivate and to display a living faith to a dying world. And James has been really clear about what that looks like. We have been sort of trying to articulate James' message clearly so that it's memorable for us. But we noted that as James is going to unfold what this living faith actually looks like, like, he, he says it this way, a living faith is wholehearted. A living faith is single focused. And a living faith is fully trusting in God and in his word. And so we've been saying that together every time that we've been listening to Pastor James unfold this mission for us to display what a living faith looks like to a dying world. So let's not miss our opportunity this morning. Let's say it together. A living faith is a faith that is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting in God and in his word. And as we made our way through chapter 1, we noted that this kind of faith is cultivated in us, it is, it is birthed in us by a word of truth. And we saw that in verse 18 of chapter 1, 
where did this faith come from? It came from the word of truth, that good gift that came down from the Father of lights, that good word brought out in us faith. And so we were birthed, this living faith was birthed out of the word of truth that James talks about in verse 18 of chapter 1. It is developed, it is cultivated through endurance and testing. And that's what the first part of chapter 1 was all about. And then it resists temptation. It, it shows its loyalty to God by resisting temptation. And we saw that in the second half or the second half of uh, the first part of chapter 1. And then we noted in the final uh, part of chapter 1 that this kind of a living faith is quick to hear and it is slow to speak. It is quick to hear and it is slow to speak and it, it is a doer of the word. It's not just a, a faith that hears. It's not just becoming a professional student of the word. It is actually that living faith resonates with the word of God and it actually is energized by the spirit of God to do whatever the word of God puts before it. And so that's really kind of what we've been looking at as we uh, have come to James chapter 2. And in James chapter 2, James gives us two big problems that are going to sort of deal a death blow to our ability to display a living faith to a dying world. And the first of those was deformed serving. Our faith, our living faith, when we present it to a dying world and we serve out of selfish ends, we have a deformed service, it absolutely eradicates the ability of our faith to do its mission. And we talked about what that looks like when we serve others selectively, when we show up with our towel and our basin and we want to serve and we want to wash certain feet, but not others. Or we want to wash feet to make a particular point to somebody. Or we want to wash feet because we know that if we wash those feet, this person over here is watching and it's going to result in this coming our way. And so we are very selective in how we serve. And we noted that that's a big problem in, in churches like ours. Isn't that true? That we oftentimes are guilty of that kind of deformed serving. And so James goes hard at that. And then he goes even harder at an even bigger problem, and he talks about a dead faith. He talks about the danger of having a head only and not a heart faith, a, a faith that believes all of the right things about God, but certainly is not energized by any inner life. And that's kind of where we left James. And now James is going to come back and he is going to introduce us to five examples of what a living faith actually looks like in the book. There are five friends of God that James wants you to be aware of as we try to understand and sort of wrap our hands around what a living faith actually looks like when we have to go out and live it out in our world and in the kingdoms where God places us. And so here are the five friends. The first of the friends is Abraham, and we meet him in our text this morning. We're going to actually look at his life today. The second friend of God is a woman named Rahab. We're going to talk about her next. 
And then to get the other three friends, you have to go all the way to the end of the book. And in chapter five, you meet three more friends of God. You meet a group of people called the prophets. And then you meet a man named Job. And then the last friend that James introduces to you is a man named Elijah. Each of these friends that James points to has had to do something. They have had to renounce the world of their day, and they have had to fully align with God. Every one of the five that James is going to point to, remember in chapter 4, he says, friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. You can't be in both camps You're going to be in both worlds, but you can't be in your heart. You can't be double-hearted about who your loyalty lies with. And so all of these five friends have had to make in their own way and in their own time, they have all had to renounce friendship with the world and they have had to align fully and completely with God. And then every one of these friends had a defining moment where they had to stand alone on their faith. Every one of these five friends that we're going to meet had a moment where it was a defining moment and they had to stand alone in their feet, in their faith. And so the first of the friends that we're going to look at is, is Abraham, the friend of God. And I've subtitled uh, the, the, the life of Abraham with this phrase, true blue, true blue. How many of you have ever heard that phrase? How many of you have ever heard somebody use the phrase true blue? This is true blue or that person who's true blue. Have you ever wondered where that phrase came from? I got curious about that. And so I thought, I want to find out why that phrase, why not true red or true green or true purple? Why true blue? And so I went on a little hunt, and and here's what I found. In the 1600s, there was a little village, Coventry was the name of the village, in England. And they were famous. That little village in England was famous for a particular blue cloth that they had managed to produce. And everyone in England wanted to buy this particular cloth. And the reason they were so interested in this cloth was because the people who were in charge or, or the people who dyed uh, the, the, the clothing or the, uh, the, the, the garments in Coventry had figured out a way to dye the cloth, the blue cloth, in such a way that the blue never faded. It never ran. How many of you have washed something and, uh, and then you've discovered that everything in the wash that you just did is, is sort of tinted in that color. Don't raise your hand. Okay, don't, don't admit to that. But a certain person in our house has done that on more than one occasion. My wife is very fastidious about if it's white, it goes in this pile. If it's dark, it goes in this pile. And there's another person in our house who's like, oh, it, it's all the same. And you just throw it in. And, and then it's all the, it really is all the same after that. And so it just makes washing so much simpler. I'll not name that person, but just so you know, this illustration strikes very close to home. Uh, can you imagine having a garment in the 1600s that never faded? 
And so it became proverbial throughout England that if you got this kind of cloth and you made a garment out of this kind of cloth, it would be true blue. And so that phrase actually started to make its way into how people talked about people. True blue came to be someone who would never fade in their loyalty, someone who was unswervingly loyal and who was unwavering in their devotion and unfailing in their commitment. So to be true blue meant that you were someone who never, ever lost your loyalty or your devotion or your commitment to a belief, a position, or to a person. And that's why when I think about the life of Abraham, Abraham was true blue when it came to faith. And so let's look at Abraham's faith this morning, and let's do it uh, from a number of different texts. We're in James chapter 2. I want you to take your finger and keep it in James chapter 2, but I want you to open to Hebrews 11. That's the other place where we're going to spend a lot of time as we look at Abraham's life. And then, of course, uh, we, we find a mention of Abraham in other places. There are a number of places throughout our Bible, but the place where we first meet Abraham And the story of his life is in Genesis chapter 12. And that story continues all the way through Genesis 22. So as we think about Abraham, let's start with this question. What is the nature of living faith? Abraham had living faith. He is the example that James introduces to us. He said, if you want to know what the living faith I'm talking about looks like, what wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith looks like, here's my first example. Abraham. So our first question ought to be, so what was the nature of Abraham's faith? What did this faith actually look like and how was it obtained? And so the writer of Hebrews gives us the answer to that. You know this as the writer of Hebrews sort of gives us a descriptive definition, a sort of a working definition of faith. You know the text, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. So keep your finger in James chapter 2 and go to Hebrews 11 and look at verse 1. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Whatever the writer of Hebrews is talking about, Abraham had it. So what does this verse mean? What does it mean when the writer of Hebrews says, and he describes faith as the assurance of things hoped for? And the idea there, very simply, is that This is a faith that is convinced, absolutely convinced that whatever we confidently expect to receive from God is real. That's that's the idea behind the assurance of things hoped for. In other words, whoever has this kind of faith is absolutely convinced that whatever it's hoping to get from God is real. It's not hypothetical. It's not, it's not a maybe. It's not something that maybe will one day happen. It's if God said this and God promised this to me, or God said this about this part of life, then if I believe that, if I have this 
confident assurance about the thing I expect. Here's what I'm confident about. It actually is real. It's real. And that's why the second part of that description is so important, the conviction of things not seen. In, in other words, whatever I believe in, whatever I, whatever I actually am putting my confidence in, I actually believe, even though I can't see it with my eye, I believe that it is real. None of you have ever seen God. Correct? But if you expect to receive anything from God, including your salvation, the first thing that the writer of Hebrews tells you, you have to do is you have to believe that he what? He is. You have to believe that someone you can't see is real. It's not just an idea. God is not just a good idea. God is not just this sort of force. Like, you know, if you're a Star Wars person like I am, then you know about the force. And maybe sometimes we kind of in our mind think maybe that's what God is. God is sort of like the moral force of the universe. And, and the writer of Hebrews sort of blows all of that up. It's just like he explodes that kind of thinking. And he says this, here's what faith is. Faith is the absolute conviction that whatever you are believing is real. It's real. And the first part of belief that you have to engage in is you have to, the first real thing you have to believe in, the first reality that you have to put everything on is God. If you don't believe that God exists, then nothing else matters. And then the second thing that the writer of Hebrews says is this, you must believe that he exists, that he's real, and then you also have to believe, you have to be completely convinced that he is the what? Rewarder of whoever comes to him for anything. In other words, when I come to God and I seek what God has promised, God is going to give it to me. That's what faith is. Faith is living in, living now in the reality of future things. And, and it believes that those things are real. Even though my eye can't see them, it's not like they, they one day will come into existence. They, there is a realm. We saw this in, he, in Ephesians chapter 1, right, verse 3. There is a realm. It's called the heavenly realm. And in that realm are very real things. And there are very real people. And one of the people that is in those things, one of the real persons that is in that realm is God. And, and you can't see with your eye into that realm. But you have a word from God about that realm. And because you believe that God is real, you believe what he has said to you about that realm. And that's where faith comes from. Abraham's faith was the belief, the confidence in the reality of an unseen God who had promised him things. And on the basis of what he believed, on the basis of the fact that he believed that God who was talking to him was real, 
and the things that he was promising him were real, Abraham obeyed. Faith was grounded in the word. So the word of God became the ground of Abraham's belief and Abraham's faith then became the root of his obedience. So where does, where does faith come from? Faith comes from the word of God. This is exactly what James 1.18 was talking about. How did, how did you become a believer? And James' answer to that is the word of truth brought you forth. It brought you forth. When you read what the Old Testament has to say about the life of Abraham and really even what the New Testament writers want you to know about Abraham, here's what you find out. You find out that Abraham lived in a city called Ur, and while he lived there, he was a worshiper of idols. He bowed down to the moon goddess in the city of Ur. And so here's my question. How did a pagan idolater who spent the first 75 years of his life bowing down to pagan idols who weren't real, how did he become a man of faith? Where did Abraham's faith come from? How did Abraham believe? He was a pagan. Joshua 24.4 actually talks about, or 24.2 talks about this. He worshiped idols. But when God's word came to him, somehow Abraham believed. How did this happen? Well, 2 Corinthians 4 says God opened his eyes. The God who caused light to shine in the beginning has shined in our hearts so that we would see and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So all of a sudden, the God who is spoke to Abraham and he opened his eyes. And then he did something else. He quickened Abraham's heart. That's exactly what we read about in Ephesians 2. God quickened us. He enlivened Abraham's heart. He opened Abraham's eyes so he could see. He enlivened Abraham's heart so that he could believe. And then he did one final thing. He energized his obedience. Philippians 2 says, it is God who causes us both to what? To will and to do of his good pleasure. So Abraham's faith came up in Abraham's heart the very same way that your faith came up in your heart. You know how your faith came up in your heart? God opened your eyes. God quickened your heart and God enabled your obedience. And the very first act of obedience was you believed what God told you to do. That's what happened. And it happened way back in Genesis 12, and it happened throughout the Old Testament, and it's still happening today, and it's happening in your life. So that's the first thing that we want to notice about Abraham. Here's the second thing. Why is Abraham like faith necessary? Like, why is it so important? Why do I need to make sure that I have this kind of faith? Well, look at Hebrews 11:2. And let me, let me show you why it is important. For by it, by this kind of faith, by the kind of faith that, that confidently expects things from a real God, even though we can't see that God, the kind of faith that expects things and confidently is waiting for things from a real God, that kind of faith is a faith 
that, that by means of that kind of faith, people of old, that's the Old Testament saints, received their commendation. We could say it this way. Approval from God comes only by this kind of faith. Approval from God comes only from this kind of faith. And so you know the, 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 the chapter in Hebrews 11, right? That chapter, we call it the hall of faith. Why? Because it is a list starting with Abel in Genesis chapter 4 and going all the way through the Old Testament of name after name after name after name after name. And some people who were not, were not named of people who did this, they believed that the God who was talking to them was real. And they believed him. They didn't just believe he was real. They actually believed what he said. They believed what he said. And because of that, God approved them. Let me, let me show this to you in Abraham's life. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, this is what we read about Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith, he went to live in the land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward He was looking down the tunnel of time. He was looking ahead in time. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, you've read that before. I've read that before. I've actually got it highlighted in orange in my Bible, and I've got it underlined. And so this is a familiar part of Abraham's story. But what we may not really put together is what this is actually telling us about Abraham. Abraham lived in a massive city kingdom called Ur. That city was massive. Back in Abraham's day, if you had a massive city, it wasn't just a place where people lived. That city was actually a kingdom. It had a king. There were smaller cities that sort of brought tribute to it. So when you went to Ur, there were only two cities in the ancient world that were bigger than Ur. One was the city of Babel, which we now know or later became known as Babylon. And then there was later a city called Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. And so Ur was the third largest city in the part of the world where Abraham lived. It was massive. It had been around for a thousand years before Abraham's time. This is a massive city. By Abraham's time, the city had a king, and that king had been, uh, the the crown had been handed down to that king for numbers of uh, generations. And so the city was in the apex of its power. It had one of the largest temples in the day. Rabbinic tradition uh, tells us that Abraham's father, Terah, was a high-ranking official in the king's court of Ur. So a very high-placed position, very highly honored nobleman in Ur, very wealthy, very well-positioned. And so for 70 years, Abraham grew up in that city. He lived in Haran for five years before he moved. So he left to go to the land of promise at 75, but for 70 years, he lived in Ur. Everybody would have known Abraham. He would have been highly placed in the city. 
He would have been extremely wealthy. He would be the kind of person that if you invited a high-ranking official from another city to come, Abraham would have been invited as part of the welcoming committee. He was a very well-placed, highly positioned, very respected person in the city of Ur. He would be regular at the ziggurat. That was the name of their temple, the kind of temple they had to the goddess of the moon. And one day, an unknown God spoke to him and said, Abraham, I want you to leave all of this. And I want you to go to a land far from here. And when you get to that land, I'm going to give it to you. And oh, by the way, there's a city I'm going to give you there. I'm going to build a city there. And one day that'll be your city. Now think about that for a minute. I mean, if you lived in Abraham's day, the gods you worship were very capricious. They changed their mind all the time. You were constantly trying to figure out how to keep the gods happy. And if they told you something or you thought you told, they told you something, you were trying to figure out how you could bind them to their word. And, and so the gods of Abraham's day were notorious for being fickle. And the reason everybody had that impression that they were fickle is because they didn't exist, Right? But they thought they did. And so when you think somebody exists and they don't, and they don't keep their word, it's like, okay, what did I do wrong? And so there was this whole idea of how God's worked. And all of a sudden, this unseen God who has no temple, he has no priests, at least not that Abraham knew about. He actually had one. We're going to find out about his name was Melchizedek. He had no city. And he says to Abraham, I want you to leave all of this, and I want you to go to that land that's far away, and I want you to dwell there in tents as a foreigner. And oh, by the way, I want you to give up all your prestige, all your honor, all of the security and safety of what you know at Ur, and and you're going to spend your life there, and one day I'm going to build a city, and I'm going to give you that city. And you know what the Scripture says? Abraham arose and went. Abraham arose and went on the strength of what God told him. And God said, that's my friend. And for Abraham's entire life, he dwelt in tents. He went to some of the biggest cities of the world. He found himself in Pharaoh's city. He found himself in a city of a massive king, an important king named Abimelech. And every time he went into those cities, it was very evident that the kings of those cities respected him. In fact, they gave him so much wealth that he walked away. And by the time he walked away, the scripture says Abraham was increased in livestock and much gold. He could have had any one of those cities. He could have built a house in any one of those cities. He would have been an important friend of Pharaoh. He would have been an important counselor to Abimelech. But Abraham said, no, I'm looking for a different city. And so I'm going to hang in my tent. And Abraham did this his entire life. 
And when Sarah died at 127 years of age, Abraham went to the people that lived in that land and he said, can I buy a little piece of this land? Now think about this. God said, I want you to leave Ur. I want you to leave all of that and I'm going to give you this land. And here is Abraham and Sarah has just died and he's still living in tents and he has nowhere to bury her. And he says, I just want to buy a little piece of this land. And at any moment, at any moment along the way, Abraham could have said, you know what, honey, aren't you tired of this tent? Let's go back to Ur. We've got friends back at Ur. People know us at Ur. I mean, why don't we just go back to Ur? And the writer of Hebrews says, Abraham continued to dwell in tents with his sons his entire life. And God says, I'm not ashamed to be his God. When I look at that man, and on the strength of my word, he left everything. I am not ashamed to be his God. And you know what, folks? On the strength of your belief, God is not ashamed to be your God. He's not ashamed when he looks down and he sees your belief that doesn't give up, that doesn't turn back, that, that continues to believe in the face of all of the unbelief. Do you remember what the, what the disciples said? Lord, we believe. Help our what? Our unbelief in the face of your own weak belief. You continue to hold on to God and you continue to move forward in the place where God has placed you and God looks at you and God says to you, now I am not ashamed to be your God. That's a stunning thing that we see here. It is necessary because approval for God comes only by faith and pleasing God comes only by faith and dwelling in the presence of God comes only by faith. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Dwelling in the presence of God comes only by faith. So that brings us to the third thing about Abraham and that is this, how does a living faith Abraham's faith, how does it express itself? How does it express itself? And I would just say it this way. A a, a living faith expresses itself this way. It is faithful. It is faithful. It is a faithful faith. No matter what. By faith, Abraham, this is in Hebrews 11, verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. It looks like believing God without reservation. Abraham just got up and went. He obeyed when he was called to go somewhere. He left everything. He left everyone on the strength of what we just talked about, on the strength of what God had said to him. It looks like following God without faltering. It looks, it, it's, that's really what, what, it, what, what we read here. He went out not knowing where he was going. So can you imagine all of Abraham's friends? So Abraham, I heard you sold the, the family uh, 
you know, dwelling place and you're wrapping up things, where are you going? Uh, we're, we're going on a journey. Well, you got to be going somewhere. Where are you going? Well, we, we've got this land that's been given to us. Really? Who gave you the land? Well, I can't tell. But, you know, he's given it to us, and it's, 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 a, it's a sure deal. Where is it? Well, you know, um, it's a journey. We're, we're going to be rolling, you know, with this God, and that's what the tents are for. Well, how long is it going to take you to get there? Well, um, we'll know when we get there. Um, where, where is the land? Well, we really don't know. Can you imagine a 70-year-old or 75-year-old man doing that? I mean, some of you are, some of you have adult children, right? You know the difference between an adult children and a little kid? They hide their stupid better. Little kids walk around with a pocket full of stupid and they pull it out. Look, right? Adult children have that same stupid. They just don't pull it out as often to show you. But every once in a while, you know, have you ever had, you know, you're, you might be a, a parent, you got an adult kid, and you're like, you're going to do what? Are you kidding me? That makes like zero sense. But you got to do what as a parent? You got to do what? You got to zip it. You get to talk, but not to them. You get to talk up, right? You get to talk to God. Can you tell them? I can't do a thing with them. You created them. You saved him, I think, and you need to start talking to him because he's, he's about to do, you know, you know what I'm saying? And all of a sudden, this, and so here's Abraham, and he's about to do at 75 years of age a crazy thing, and he's headed out to a place he has no idea where it is or what it's going to be like when he gets there, and, and he doesn't falter. And then it looks like being faithful to God without wavering. Living in tents. We talked about this. And it looks like living for God without doubting. Abraham was willing to give everything he had in this life. Everything. And you say, well, yeah, that's, I'm not Abraham. But actually, you are Abraham. Because the scripture says, Abraham is your father. He's your father. And the, and the idea in, in the Bible when it talks about somebody being your father is not talking about your physical father. It's not talking about this is the person who fathered you. It's talking about this is the person that you are like. You are like this person. When Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he said to them, you have a father. You have a father. Your father is the devil. He wasn't talking about the fact that they were physically spawned by Satan. He was talking about the fact that their hearts were characterized and marked by the very things that marked the hearts or the heart of of Satan, right? And, And that's exactly what the writer of Scripture is talking about when he talks about Abraham being your father. He actually is your spiritual father, and the faith of Abraham is your faith, and therefore you are like Abraham. And and. In that way, whatever God has for you, he wants your faith to be faithful. Which brings us to the final thing, and that is this. How is this kind of faith developed? How is this kind of faith developed? How is it matured? 
Because James talks about this in chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2 of James and, and let's notice what James wants us to see about Abraham's life. Remember, we looked at this two weeks ago in verse 22. You see that faith, Abraham's, was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And we noted that that word completed in verse 22 is the idea of matured. It's not like Abraham didn't have a complete faith, like it was missing some parts. All the parts that Abraham's faith needed were there from day one. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, Abraham believed God, and that was when God credited righteousness to him, even though we're not told that until Genesis 15. But in essence, what we're told here is that Abraham believed God and all of the parts of a living faith were immediately present in his life. So when when we read the idea that James is saying that something completed Abraham's faith, it's not that there was parts that were missing. It's that Abraham's faith needed to grow. It needed to develop. It needed to mature. So how does God develop and mature our faith. And he does it through something called endurance. We talked about endurance in James chapter 1. And in order for endurance to be present in your life, there has to be something to endure. Endurance is not just a theoretical concept. It's like saying, I want to learn how to swim. Okay, I'm going to learn how to swim. Great. How are you going to do that? I'm going to go to the library. And you're going to sit there and say, huh? Yeah, I'm going to the library. Do they have a pool at the library? It's like, what? what I, you know, that must be a really cool library. I've never heard of a pool at a library. No, no, there's no pool at the library, but there's books on swimming at the library. So that's how you can learn how to swim. Yeah, I'm going to get all these books. I mean, there's some really cool books. They even have pictures and stuff. And there's like some videos there on swimming. And so I'm just going to spend my summer in the library and I'm going to read everything I can on swimming. And I'm going to, I'm going to watch these videos. And by the end of the summer, guess what? I'm going to know how to swim. Are you going to pull it off? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to. Christians don't do that. They do if they drown. Are you getting in the water? No, I'm, not, I'm a little, you know, I don't like water, so, you know. Um, so you're going to learn. And the answer is you're never going to learn how to swim until you get in the water. And you are never going to learn to endure until God introduces what? A test. And Abraham's faith was tested. From Genesis 12 through Genesis 22, Abraham's faith was tested over and over and over and over and over. Is God going to keep his word? Is God going to keep his word? It was tested in spite of the cost. Abraham, you're going to have to give up everything for a city you don't know about yet, but I, it's a city that exists. It exists in the heavenly realm. It's very real, and I'm going to give it to you one day. Abraham's faith was tested in spite of disappointment and betrayal. Here is Lot, the one person that should have known who Abraham was. And, 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 and all of a sudden, Lot takes the best property. And Abraham's looking to God saying, God, I thought you promised me stuff. And God says, I did. Look up there and count 
And if you can count the stars, you're going to have more descendants than that. I'm going to make a covenant with you. You realize Abraham's faith was tested and tempted by his own failures. Two times Abraham put his own wife in danger because he was fearful. And instead of just sort of throwing his hands up and saying, God, I failed, I sinned, I broke, I, I broke faith with you, Abraham went back to the place of faith and renewed his commitment to God. It's an amazing story. If we had time, I'd tell it to you. How did God develop Abraham's faith? He developed Abraham's faith test after test, pressure after pressure, just like he develops your faith, just like he develops my faith, until one day, 25 years after Abraham got a promise that he would get a son, that son was finally there. And 37 years later, that little boy Isaac was now a young man. Everything hinged on him, everything. All of the promises hinged on that son. And God said to Abraham, I want to see if your faith is wholehearted. I want to see if your faith is single-focused. I want to see if your faith is fully trusting. You know, there are just times where there are accusations that Satan makes like he did with Job. I know why he's following you. And so God said to Abraham, I want everybody to know why you're following me. So I want everybody to know that your faith that I counted righteousness to you on is true living faith. It is wholehearted, single focus, fully trusting. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that boy and I want you to go on a journey. Just like the journey I called you when we first started back in Genesis 12, I want you to go on another journey. And I want you to take that boy to a mountain. And when you get there, I want you to sacrifice him to me. This was the unthinkable. James says, be quick to hear and slow to speak. You know what Abraham did in Genesis 22? He got up, he took Isaac, and he went. And he said nothing until Isaac asked him a question. Isaac said, hey, Dad, I see the the wood, and obviously I see the knife, and I see the fire pot, but what I don't see is the sacrifice. And Abraham said, what? God will provide. God will see to that. And by the end of that story, God said from that mountain, and it's preserved in Scripture, Abraham, now I know. Now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you worship me. This is why God says about Abraham, that is my friend. Now let me end it with this as we close our time together this morning. Abraham spent his entire life looking a city for a city whose builder and maker was God. I've often wondered about that. When Abraham was 70 years of age, a tragedy took place at Ur. An enemy army, the Elamites, came in and they overcame the city. They 
routed the army, they tumbled down the king of Ur, and they burned the city to the ground, which is why Abraham's family moved to Haran for five years. Abraham spent his life looking for a city that that would never happen to again, a city whose builder and maker is God. And the writer of Hebrews says Abraham saw that city. That city isn't waiting to be built. That city exists in a realm called heaven. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that. There is a city in heaven, and it's called the New Jerusalem. And its description is stunning. It's stunning. It's in Revelation 21 and 22. And one day that city is going to come and it is going to be placed in the very land that Abraham walked around in. And Abraham is going to be well known in that city. Everybody is going to know who Abraham is in that city because it's Abraham's city. There was another man who walked out with Abraham who's going to be there in that city. He worshiped at the same altars that Abraham built. <clears throat> he listened to the same stories Abraham told around the campfires when they were gathered together, and his name was Lot. And one day, Lot just got tired of living in tents. And he looked over and he saw a little city, well-watered, lots of wealth, lots of power, lots of, lots of stuff, <clears throat> And lots of wickedness. And one day he stood on a plane next to his uncle Abraham and he made a choice. And instead of continuing to look for the city that God had promised Abraham, he thought, you know what? I'll just go to that city. That's a great little city. That's wonderful. It's all I need. It'll, it'll be a great place. I'll have stature. I'll have honor. I'll, I, it's, it's where I can make my mark. You know, I can take my towel, my basin there, and I can do whatever I can. You know, I, I can just be me in that little city. And, and, and that decision cost Lot everything. It cost him everything. Peter says that God rescued righteous Lot, so we know Lot was righteous and we know he'll be in the city, but he lost everything in the journey. That's why when James says, Abraham is a friend of God, you need to be a friend of God. You need to be a person who, like Abraham, fully aligns yourself with whatever God has told you to do. Believe God. He's already counted it to you for righteousness. And, and the righteousness that you have from God is now the righteousness that you need to live out in your life because you believe the same God that gave you that righteousness. Lord, we want to take a minute to just thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, we ask that you would help us to not just read about Abraham, and not just to admire Abraham or to understand Abraham, but to embrace his faith and to live faithfully because we know that the things we can't see with our eyes are real. There really is a new Jerusalem and it is glorious. It exists in heaven 
It's not just an idea. It's not just a plan on some heavenly uh, blueprint. Lord, it is a physical city that you have been building. And one day that city is going to be visible to everybody in this realm. So, Lord, as we live our everyday life in the little cities, in the little kingdoms of this world, help us to always live for that city, for its agenda, for its purposes, and for its mission. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.